Hey everyone, welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast, where we engage with culture and equip the local church in faith and ministry. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the Communications Coordinator at High Point Church. This is one of our Ask Me Anything follow-up episodes, where we answer the remaining questions from the AMA time after our Sunday service. This particular sermon on healing stirred up a lot of great questions that Nick Gibson, our lead pastor, and Jill Reese, his content and ministry coordinator, are going to answer. As always, if you have any further questions, email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. We'd love to have you join us for future AMA times on Sundays at 9 a.m. at highpointchurch.org slash live. Thanks for listening. Hey, everyone. We are following up on the Ask Me Anything from Sunday Sermon on the topic of healing. And first, we just had a comment on Nick for you to please preach more messages on healing. So, great. we got a lot of questions. It was a good topic. Okay. The first question is a clarification from something that came up in the AMA in the service. This person says, my question was put together with one on trauma that occurred real early or in infancy. I've been to counseling and the trauma was not too early, but I seem to be allowed only partial recollection and aftermath. I want full recollection, but don't seem to be allowed to have it. Do I need it? Okay. I, my understanding is that th- this person asked a question. We put it together with another person's question. Yes. And they're saying, so their trauma wasn't too early. Okay. So yeah. the wording there is interesting. Allowed only partial recognition. Like somebody else is doing that. Um, I'm not exactly sure what that means. However, there's a couple things I, I would say about this. Um, often the answer is no. For do you need it? I think, however, um, I don't I actually don't want to say too much about this because without knowing more, I'm a little cagey about that. Um, one of the things you can do, though, is if you know what the wound is now. Or if you're exploring the processing instead of going back. So some people will process by thinking about their past experiences. That's a really could be a really helpful way to process things. Sometimes people will process from a phenomenon, like they'll feel anxious or they'll feel depressed, or like, and they'll 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 try to process from the um, from the symptom to what is going on. Does that make sense? Sometimes that will lead you to past memories. Sometimes that'll trigger you to remember stuff that you kind of forgot, and sometimes it just won't. And um, generally speaking, um, I don't know how many counselors would agree with me on this, but generally speaking, I tend to believe. That the things that you need to be able to remember for you to be able to process their healing, you remember. And I think the reason I think that is that you have kept it. That's why it's a problem. So um, I think we tend to not remember stuff that we don't need. The things that our mind thinks we need, it keeps. And then that's why it's in your way because your mind did keep it. Um. So generally speaking, I think that if you need it, you you can remember it. But I but I think if you just can't, I think you just there's other ways to process. One of the things that Jill and I will often do when we're meeting with people is we'll go through four or five different ways to process. And remembering your past is only one of them. So I would say if you can't remember it, then utilize what you do remember. Utilize whatever your counselor gave you for skills. But then also like use some other ways to to process. You know. Yeah, and as I've processed through p- past trauma, 
some of my trauma happened when I was about three, so I don't remember very much. So this is speaking from personal experience, but this, so this may be true or not in this situation, but um, I found that I, I did feel like I needed to fix something in the past or find out this secret um, knowledge that I didn't have yet. And so a lot of my healing work for years was focused on the past. And I don't think that was productive that whole time because mm-hmm. I kept trying to f- figure out what happened or like what it was that exactly impacted me and how it was impacting me now. And right. I've actually been had more productive healing work when I focused on the present and how I'm affected now and what needs um, right. redemption now in my current relationships. And I can work out those effects in the present. Yeah. You kind of go back as it's almost like a route where you, you go kind of out to down into tendrils as far as you need to, to resolve it. And, um, but yeah, don't think that there's some kind of like hidden knowledge back there that if you don't, if you don't get it, you can't be healed. I don't, I think that's mm-hmm. right. Joe. Yeah. Okay. Next question. How can I encourage the people I love who do not believe to pursue their own healing without seeming like I am forcing my beliefs on them? I try to set an example and pray. What more can I do? Yeah. I mean, I think the, I think the, the directions person is going to try to work, focus on themselves first is good. Humility is good. Um, the, the dynamics of psychological healing relative to the human mind are part of natural revelation. That is that they didn't require the special revelation of scripture, right? There's a certain amount of things you can understand about, about heart healing that are available to everybody that can be investigated. That's why uh, the, a, there's a science called psychology, right? Now, I do believe that without certain Christian ideas, some of which come to us mainly through special revelation, there is an incompleteness to all psychological healing. I do believe that. Um, my sermon on Nehemiah 9 from, I believe it was March, I talk about like some secular uses of the concept of shame and be, how because psychologists don't have access to the concept of atonement in the way we do religiously um, by believing in Christ's death and resurrection, they don't have access to something that heals shame. So shame ends up being something they look at as universally bad. Therefore, they can't actually learn the lessons shame has come to teach, productive shame has, and they can only see unproductive shame, not productive shame. So they end up defining shame in a way that I think is probably wrong in order to make that all work. And it's because at the heart of present modern psychological counseling is not a bankruptcy of science in the, in the fact of like understanding the human mind, so to speak, but there's a moral bankruptcy relative to like what shame is and its moral legitimacy. And therefore that we have to find a way to cope with it psychologically if it's morally legitimate. So I say that just to say, um, there are things in psychological healing that you can experience and walk through that are that don't require Christian faith, right? Christ has made them true as the creating God who has made the world, but the bearing of the image of God as a human creature can be explored irreligiously. It can never be its full self because it doesn't relate back to the one who made it properly. And so that there's a limitation, but there's a lot. So like when I do evangelism, for example, in most cases, I end up talking about stuff that isn't directly related to Jesus, but 
but and oftentimes we'll talk about psychological things and emotional healing and all that kind of stuff. And I can talk about that without talking about Jesus, but I want to talk about Jesus. Right. And so I think you can talk to family members like that and use some of the concepts that you're understanding, even some of the practices. Like I've explained prayer to people without saying the word prayer. <laughs> mm-hmm. and How do you like, do that? Oh, that's really cool. That's really cool. And then at the end, I'm like, now historically, um, religious people called this prayer. You know, it, and, and sometimes they, they react much differently because I come around the back way like that. Instead of saying, well, you should pray. And here's what I mean. Mm. I say, you know, sometimes it's incredibly helpful for a human being to do blah, 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 blah. Right. And then, and then at the end I go, you know, Christians for a couple thousand years have called this prayer. So sometimes it's just, it's that approach, which way you're coming in by and whether or not you just appeal to the natural revelation of psychology and then move to Christ rather than saying, um, Jesus, 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 now seek healing. Does that Mm -hmm. make sense? So in the example of prayer, would you leave God out of it? How did you talk about prayer without talking about God? Or were you talking about God and just not saying it was prayer? You can do both. So I'm partly, so I've done this more than once, right? So part of me is like, I'm reading the person to see what, what I think they're ready for. Um, so, so sometimes I'll say, you know, I have a quiet time every day where, um, you know, I start by just letting the dust settle and then I start thinking about my life and then, um, and then I'll engage in like prayer, prayer reflection or so on, or, or I'll, like, I'll be as like nondescript, but if I think that the person can handle it, then I'll do that. Mm-hmm. rather than do it in the next conversation. Mm-hmm. So usually I want to get them nodding in the right direction before I explicitly talk about God in Madison. Other places, that's not true. Mm-hmm. But in Madison. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I have one more follow-up question to this. So especially with healing, do you think there's a good way to point people to Christ in that? Like um, one example is that I was getting my haircut this weekend and the woman who's cutting my hair i've gone to her for years but she was talking about covid and how she's been really depressed and really struggling and she was saying some of the language we've used at church like um well i just really want to get back to like what it means to be a human like i think i've just been trying to escape and like i want to work some stuff out during this time and she didn't really know what that looked like and so i did talk about some of the things i was doing I did talk about our church and what we were doing, mm-hmm. but in that moment, I, I did have that feeling of like, I don't want her to feel like, oh, I'm just trying to jump on her and <laughs> push something down her throat. But um, have you had experience with the he- like people wanting healing mm-hmm. and introducing Christ in that moment? Yeah. Um, oftentimes, usually it's through the doctrine of, the, of atonement. It's okay. that people don't want to deal with a lot of their wounds because we have been the perpetrators a lot more than we want to um, want to confess to. And the minute you start getting into the idea that you're a victim and you've gotten these wounds, you're thinking in moral harming and being harmed categories. And before you know it, you're talking about you being the harming one. And that's really terrifying. And so by introducing, so sometimes, sometimes I like, I like actually wrote a letter to my brother-in-law who is like sort of nominally Jewish about some things we talked about. And I said, one of the ideas you need to consider is this idea of atonement. Instead of just forgetting about what you've done in the past and say, well, I've grown. On some level, you know that the fact that you grew from hurting somebody else doesn't make you hurting them okay. Right? Like that evil still hangs in the air. And 
in his case, I pointed it back to his own Judaism. And I said, listen, within Judaism is this concept, like, like, Christ, like Jesus brought it through to Christianity through Judaism, right? And I think if you embrace that idea, that would start to fill out your beliefs. And then from there, I would go to, okay, so how do we receive a once for all atonement when in the Jewish tradition, you had to make these sacrifices and so on? Well, it's in the man, Jesus Christ, right? So for me, I think the concept of atonement is one of those ideas that like no other religion has access to other than perhaps Judaism and Judaism has lost its mechanism of atonement. Right. And so it just, that idea just isn't anywhere. And yet it's a foundational one for emotional healing, especially on this, on the perpetrating side of emotional healing, which everybody should be able to connect with. So for me, it it tends to come that way, but I really do try to tailor it to the person I'm talking to. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. Next question. You often say, quote, you need to dot, 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 end quote. What did the man with 2000 evil spirits need to do for Jesus to heal him? And that's from Mark 5, 1 through 20. And you referenced that in your sermon. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think anything, right? I, th- I think that I think that he was under the influence of the Legion. And I think that he ran up to him. So like on one level, you could say, he ran up to Jesus and fell at his feet. But it's it's unclear from that story uh, from whose influence he did that, right? In a lot of other stories of exorcism, people would throw themselves at Jesus' feet, and it was clearly under the influence of the devil, right? That w- whatever devil was de- demonizing the person. So I don't know if you can actually look at anything that the man did before Jesus healed him in that story that you could attribute positively to that man in any sense. Um, afterwards, he asked to follow Jesus, and Jesus sent him back to the cities, the, De- the Decapolis, to tell all God had done for him. And he, and apparently, he did. So, so I mean, you can point to some things after that he he did responding out of faith, but but at the same time, I wouldn't say that because in Mark five one to twenty in that story, you can't find anything that guy did to receive his healing. Doesn't mean that in the process of sanctification we can't be asked to participate in something for our spiritual healing. The the fact is, is that all through the New Testament, especially in the epistles of Paul or the epistles of the apostles, they're constantly telling us how we are supposed to engage with the process of healing and sanctification, right? Obviously the passage we memorized um, for the series in second Peter, but there's tons of passages in which that's the case where we're told to do something. And yet we're still told to believe that what happens happens because of God's generosity, grace, and power. Whether that's in Romans 7 and 8, whether that's in earlier chapters, whether it's, I mean, there's lots of examples of it, obviously. So if that's where that question is going, then I would say you're leading the witness. The one doesn't follow from the other. There are cases where God, God acts more unilaterally than others. But I think it's a, I think it's a bad precedent to take the most unilateral cases of God's action in the Bible and apply that to every case of human action. I, I don't think that's what we're supposed to do. I think we're supposed to see how powerful God is, how unilateral he can be, but then recognize where he tells us to act, we should, and we should exert faith in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. The next question is, what it, what is the point at which something requires professional counseling? It seems like there is a spectrum between traumatic things and more subtle wounds. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that there's a couple things. Most people go to counseling when they are, when their life isn't working. 
So they, they're not only, not only can't get over the wound or whatever it is, but they're, there's something in their life that's going to implode like their marriage or their job or their health or something like that. And then they'll go to counseling. So I think that's, I mean, I think that's a good reason. I think it's not the only one, right? I think, I think when you get stuck and you find yourself stuck and you really don't know what to do next, but you really do want to get free of the thing. I think that's one. I think if you do know that your wound is the result of trauma, I think, I think trauma counseling can, can be one of the more helpful ones because it's not just reasoning through stuff like that. The dynamics of how to deal with trauma, um, it's really helpful to have that expertise. I mean, almost all the things that you would go to a counselor for, you could just read stuff that the counselor knows and do it. But having the counselor's um, professional capacity and their experience is really helpful, right? So, and then the third thing I would say is, like, if you've got the money to do it and it's worth the investment to just get help from somebody helping you do that, that's just helpful. So I wouldn't say it's just like a, oh, if X happens, then blank. What we do in spiritual counseling at churches is that we first apply spiritual counseling. Here's what scripture says. This is what Jesus taught. This is how we respond in faith and so on. And then we find somebody seems to be sincerely trying to do it and they just can't. Something's just kind of getting in the way that they don't understand and that we don't totally understand. Usually that's going to be what we call a clinical issue. The understanding human development and how human development goes wrong. Um that there's something related to that. And that's the specific expertise a counselor has. At that point, I'll send a person to a counselor. Jill, I know you probably have something to say about this. Yeah. I, in terms of if you're wondering how to tell if you're stuck, um, if, you ha- if you respond either more, emotional, more emotionally than is appropriate for the, whatever is happening or less. So if you feel like you can't cry or you don't experience a lot of anger or you don't have a lot of emotional response to something that you should have an emotional response to mm-hmm. um, based on its weight or how it's affecting you um, or if it's just you explode or are super anxious and can't handle it, um, that's a good sign that there's something deeper going on. Um, that was the case for me. I just would have these seasons where like, I would just plummet emotionally and not even be able to make the connections of why myself. So yeah. that could be a marker for you too. Yeah. So I think for Christians, I think it is good to go to your pastor or somebody at church for, for pastoral counseling or spiritual counseling. And then if you find that like the, it's not hit, there's something going on in you that it's not hitting, but you really do believe in Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Sometimes that's a, sometimes that's a marker. You know? mm-hmm. Sometimes though, you'll just, pastors will send you counseling because they just can't meet with you every week for an indefinite period of time. And you just need that, that's like that professional coaching, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I do want to say about trauma counseling in particular, it is different than cognitive behavioral counseling where you're telling yourself the right thing and Mm -hmm. over and over. So there's a lot of repetition with that. Uh, Trauma counseling gets more into the deeper um, and more like childlike parts of the brain. Um, So there's a lot we could go into that, but it's different than just like, I need to tell myself the right thing and do it. it kind of hits at a like more heart and emotional level of these primal emotional responses that feel really hard to control. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Could you talk Nick about 
the different kinds of counseling. So we just talked a little bit about trauma counseling and professional counseling. Could you talk about biblical counseling versus Christian counseling? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, man, this is hard to do without caricaturing one or the other, right? But generally speaking, biblical counseling is the idea that the Bible has within it. It's no, the normative guidelines or the, th- the things or all the resources that you need to counsel somebody. Usually the people will argue that from the theological idea of the sufficiency of scripture. Christians believe that Christian that scripture is sufficient for faith and practice for Christians. And a bl- big part of the practice of the faith is emotional and, and psychological healing. So the belief is, is that the resources that we need are in the Bible. If we would study the Bible better, we would have what we need to counsel people psychologically speak in a psychological way. And we would also stay closer to God's word rather than um, rather than bring in some of the non-Christian assumptions that can be built into psychological knowledge. So, I mean, many people know that psychology as a science is dated to about, is dated to Freud of the Austrians. And now Freud killed himself, not because of psychological despair, but because he had like cancer in his face. And he didn't want to go on, but like a number of the Austrian psychotherapists that were connected to that school um, ended up killing themselves. Like it, it was not a healthy thing. And um, psychology um, can function as an alternative religion, right? Because you want to understand the human soul, mind, being, consciousness. And if you don't do that through religious means, partially, then um, but you still want to do it. Psychology is a mechanism for that. So it draws non-religious people. Um, into its ranks and it produces writings from people who are studying and researching and understanding psychology from that vantage point. And so psychology has a strongly non-theistic, atheistic, or irreligious standpoint while it attempts to and presumes to understand religion. And that's true all the way back to Freud and and has been going on ever since. And so there's a lot of a lot of what Christians would call crap in psychology. And so biblical counseling tries to create this like membrane between bad psychological concepts and Christian biblical counseling by focusing on the Bible as its source of knowledge and psychological textbook rather than the field of psychology. In doing so, it seeks to keep out all that should be rejected by Christians in the field of psychology, which is actually quite a lot. Okay. Now, the Christian counseling side, generally speaking, it tends to be Christians who recognize the value in the insights of the field of psychology and what's been learned in the practice of counseling. And so generally speaking, this is, these are folks who go and get counseling training. They're Christians. And then they try to integrate Christian theology and psychology models to come up with a Christian counseling model in which we are taking what comes from the natural revelation investigated through science in the science of psychology, what we can learn about the human mind, put together what we can learn, what we know about Christ and God in the scriptures and synthesized together so as to come up with a truly Christian environment or mechanism of counseling, right? The issue with Christian counseling is is it's often not very Christian. Um, People will go and they'll get counseling degrees and they think that they know a lot about Christianity because they've been Christians for a while, but they don't have anything like a pastoral training, certainly not a good one. And so they think that they're doing Christian integration because things in psychology that they've read remind them or in their mind, they intuitively relate to this or that Christian doctrine. And because they don't understand the structure of Christian theology well enough, they end up basically putting a Christian veneer over a 
in some cases, profoundly atheistic and non-Christian um, set of psychological principles that they haven't gone through and decided what to accept, what to change, and what to reject from psychology. They've, they've imbibed it fairly uncritically in the psychological training. And so a lot of the stuff in um, psychology that's really just terrible makes it into the repertoire and um, and procedures of these Christian counselors. And so what you get is Christian counseling that isn't in any meaningful sense Christian. In fact, in many cases, it is the opposite of that. It is anti-Christian or heretical or is counseling people to do things no Christian should do, right? And so um, so biblical counseling can sometimes be psychologically illiterate, engage in things that are essentially psychological malpractice. And that is covered over with a veneer of we're being very biblical. Christian counseling can often, it's seeking to be um, scientifically apt and informed, can be uncritical in its synthesizing process and come up with a counseling that isn't really Christian. Um, one of the things that we've been trying to do, Jill and I have been spending a lot of time on this, is to try to come up with a, um, a, a good integration, like an integration that is fully theologically informed, is truly psychologically informed, and is a good Christian synthesis. And that is, I don't want to say it's rare. But it's not rare would mean like, you know, less than 50%. It would be like maybe less than 20% of Christian counselors are really Christian, let's say, or our biblical counselors are really psychologically informed enough. I don't think it's that rare, but I also don't think it's more than half. Mm -hmm. I think that it is, it is rare enough that you shouldn't assume. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's why I try to, that's why I don't recommend that that many counselors. I just don't, I frankly don't trust enough counselors to be either psychologically informed enough or Christianly integrated enough. Mm-hmm. And what you what you just spoke of, Nick, we've been talking about it as spiritual counseling, this like more integrated um, model, but it is also to clarify not clinical counseling either, whereas Christian counseling is usually clinical counseling with a Christian veneer, right? Usually might be too strong, but okay. often yes. That's yeah, how essentially I've most I've Christian counselors are Christian lay people. They're not clergy, so they haven't actually received a theological education, right? Mm-hmm. And so, in order to be a Christian counselor, I would argue, I don't think it's too much to say that you need a Christian. You need Christian training and counseling training, mm-hmm. or or you might say theological training and psychological training, and whichever one you leave out, you're just going to be weak on. Mm-hmm. It just is what it is. My psychology is weaker than my theology because my training is in theology, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, my, like my wife, Alexi, she's just finishing up her MA in Christian thought as her theological training that she's going to start her start a counseling degree. So she'll have both. It'll be interesting to see where right. she ends up, you know? Yeah. Um, and that, that's one of the reasons why I think somebody like Sue Gruen, who doesn't have a theological training, you know, she's doing the best she can. She, I mean, she reads a lot of stuff to try to mm-hmm. make sure that what she does psychologically is truly Christian and not yeah. just Christianish. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Cause there's not only a lot of atheistic and naturalistic and materialistic assumptions that within a lot of modern psychology, there's also a lot of new age stuff in modern psychology that is equally unhelpful from another perspective. Yeah. Yeah. There are, it is confusing that there's biblical Christian and then we just were talking about spiritual counseling. So thanks for yeah. clarifying all those different, yeah, I don't yeah, I don't know. I mean, I try to just call it counseling, you know, like when yeah. you're trying to help somebody work through things. But you cuz mm-hmm. even like if you talk about going to a counselor for counseling, you're still talking about 10 or 15 different things. 
trauma therapy is very different than cognitive behavioral therapy, which right. is very different than psychoanalysis, which is very different from um, like uh, remedial social knowledge or relational dynamics. So like you can just have people that just, they don't know how to relate to people because they just, they don't get it. And like, you just explain it to them and it doesn't really take, people call it like interpersonal skills. Like in MSW people will call it like social skills. Like some people, that's what they get at. They go to counseling. The counselor's like, oh, you just don't have any social skills. Okay, look, yeah, you don't scream at people. That doesn't work for them, right? Sometimes it's just that. So there's many different kinds of counseling. And so I, I like even just the label counseling can be a little, mm-hmm. a little misleading, right? And, and I see this with people who, I'll tell them what kind of, like I'll see people who have gotten a lot of cognitive behavioral counseling. And I think what they need is psychotherapy. They need somebody who's, who can walk through the processing of deeper things with them. Um, and, uh, I know Sue would say this too, that, that, sh- that like, sometimes you need that behavioral cognitive stuff to help you in the short term. And sometimes that's all people need, mm-hmm. but, but there's a lot of people that are going to need to work through stuff. And co- I don't mm-hmm. think cognitive behavioral therapy tends to help you work through stuff very well. Um, mm-hmm. I don't have a lot of faith in it. So, so counseling isn't even counseling. So in that sense, now you're like, well, which one is Christian? And it gets, it could get pretty complicated. Yeah. Yeah. But I think looking for the right person who is. Right who loves the Lord is really key and is a good counselor. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Premise one is it's your job mm-hmm. to grow and be healed. Like you can't put, you can't put the weight of you getting better on the counselor. You have to have that really clear in your mind. And then now once you've taken a hundred percent responsibility for your therapeutic goals, your growth, your healing, right now you can say, okay, is this counselor helping me? I am responsible but is this person the kind of ally that can help me do the work to get where I need to go? Yeah. At that point, I think you're right. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Next question. If there are emotional wounds from your past, you feel you have been able to thoroughly deal with, is there any use in returning to them from time to time? I, I mean, I think there might be, but I think if the word thoroughly means thoroughly, then I don't think I would return to them unless they returned to me. You know? Yeah. That's sounds like a good word to me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But you might end up finding yourself back at them through some other means. Like if you're working through some mm-hmm. anxiety that you're having or whatever, or God's taking you through something in reflection and prayer, you might find yourself going back to those things. And when that happens, I wouldn't resist it. Right. Either, you know? Right. Yeah. I've always found that they find me when like a new, it's almost like a new iteration of whatever the wound was will kind of come up. And I think they get less intense over time for me for sure. But, um. Yeah, they've come up for me. I haven't had to go find them <laughs> if I if I need to deal with them. But mm-hmm. all right, seven. What does it mean to be disciplined by God in Hebrews twelve? Do you know what sermon I preached on this? I don't remember off the top. I spent of my head. a long time on this in a sermon not that long ago. Um, and I can't, I can't remember and I haven't searched on it yet. Um, okay. So I'll find it and post it in the show notes. Yeah. So in verse seven of Hebrews 12, it says, endure, endure hardship as discipline. 
right? And so, um, in that sense, all all hardship, our attitude about it is that we should treat it like discipline. That's not to say that everything hard happens to us is God punishing us, but that we should receive it as trial, like the kind of thing that's being put on us so that we can grow and develop and be changed. Okay. That doesn't mean that like, if you get cancer, God's punishing you or that you got cancer just because God wanted to strengthen you or make you deeper as a person. That's not what the first says. It says that you should endure it as it's, as though it's discipline. Endure hardship as discipline. So in your attitude of enduring, you should treat it like it's discipline or a trial designed to make you stronger because that's how God is interacting with it as a father, right? Um, but like, there's also other things going on, like you're under the curse and some people make choices that can harm you. And there's all kinds of reasons why things could be happening. But what the author of Hebrews is saying is, for all those reasons why something could be happening, when hardship comes in, you have to endure it. And so you should endure it as though God is doing something to develop you, right? Have, that's the attitude you should have. And if you do that, then you'll receive it as his discipline, right? And um, then the author of Hebrews says, because like we all got disciplined by our fathers and it was painful. Um, because not not only were was it perfectly fine to spank your kids in these days, right? Um, you, like really roughly, but also like people weren't super delicate about feelings and stuff like that. And so the so people who read this be like, yeah, I remember my dad like preparing me for the world and it was hard and painful, you know. But he was preparing for me for the world and now I respect him for it, right? That's that's a general idea you you would have towards a father's discipline if they were generally a good father. So mm-hmm. I think that's the main focus and takeaway. If you get more specific, I think you start getting more specific than the passage is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like the discipline is more of a broad, like shaping of someone versus a punishment. That was what I took away from what you said. Yeah. 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 Discipline. Yeah. People get the idea of punishment because of verse six, because of the quotation from, from Proverbs. I discussed this in the sermon. So okay. if you find that sermon and post it, I would encourage people to listen to it because I talk about how um, this quotation from Proverbs has punishes, and that word is in parallel with discipline. And so people assume that discipline then means God punishing us. Therefore, all hardship is God's punishment, right? And I explain how that's actually wrong, that mm-hmm. that discipline and pun- that, that word punishment means more like trial. And it's discipline and trial, meaning that God is growing you. So it's it's not a judicial punishment. It's a it's a discipline or a it's negative in nature, right? Because it's suffering, but it's it's for your good and it's out of love. Mm-hmm. That's the key. So yeah. it, it's supposed to set our attitudes in that way. Okay. All right. The next question is: How do you avoid guilty companionship when your closest family have the same emotional wounds? That's a really interesting one. Hmm. Um, that's, it's really hard to do. Sometimes you can't do it with your family. Sometimes you have to, to get into non-guilty companionship with other people. Um, and then you just don't accept that part of familial companionship as best you can. Um, I've I've seen this, my wife's family, this is true, especially, um, with her family. We don't, I don't get together as much with my family and my brother's a believer and my mom came to faith and we've, they've, cha- they've all changed a lot. So there's some of this dynamic with my family, but a lot less. And it's just, it's, 
getting together with her family is one of the most humiliating things for us because of how how regressive we can become. Like how easy it is to fall back into that stuff, even though you're fighting it. And so, um, you know, we just try to stay close to each other. We try to make sure even when we visit our family, we have like quiet times and personal devotions and times of prayer where we get away from them and we try to draw close to God. And then we, we just do our best, you know? Um, but yeah, that, that's a really difficult dynamic. Mm-hmm. It's a really difficult dynamic. And it's, mm-hmm. it's one you just have to bear the testing of, I think, as wisely mm-hmm. as you can. Yeah, Nick, what you said in the beginning about having non-guilty companionship is really important for knowing mm-hmm. the difference. Um, that's been one of the most helpful things to me is knowing, like, this isn't loving. <laughs> it, you just can start to tell in the original, your original family and your closest family what's um, good or not. When if you've grown up in that, it's really hard to tell. Yeah. Unless you have that comparison. So I think- yeah. And the same that you find that. that same dynamic at work. Like if your work has yeah. a very gossipy culture, you know, there's a lot of guilty companionship and gossip and you'd have to figure out a way not to wade in that. And mm-hmm. um, that can be as difficult, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. How can God's healing power, both emotional and physical, become more of an expectation and ethos in the culture of the body? Would you see culture and expectations rise with testimonies and learning corporately to pray for healing and learning to walk in the authority Jesus gave us to heal in his name? Yes. Yeah. I think so. I think that I think this question is leading the witness. Like, I think the person who asked it is like, isn't that right? Like, that's right. Right. And the answer is yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I think, I think also though there, there, it's very easy to build the wrong expectations for people. The healing is going to happen immediately. The healing is going to be overwhelming. The, the healing is not going to require a lot of work on your part, etc. I think that can happen. I also think that there, you can easily, it's not that hard to get a triumphalist attitude about healing. Um, and so that's, you know, that happens in some of our, um, brothers and sisters in the more charismatic churches. And so, yes, I do agree that more testimonies and um, more corporate prayer for healing and more sensitivity pastorally would all be great. And I, I, High Point could definitely grow in that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And culture takes time to grow. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if we just went up next week and like started to really push this i don't it would kind of yeah. kill it you know yeah so for like, a lot of folks they would just leave because it would feel just so weird right. for them and they, yeah right so part of it so, is how you walk into it mm-hmm. okay how can we as a church help others who need healing what are specific things a healing community does for the wounded i think the most important thing well i think one of the most concrete things is um seeking to be a loving community of healing as, as a group of people so that as you get broken among people, you get healed among people. I think that, I think there's a social nature to psychological healing. That's one of the things Jill, you've been working on a good bit is, Mm -hmm. is trying to create groups and friendships and mentoring relationships. And, and, and you're functioning from this idea that like you don't get healed going to a counselor once a week for an hour. In fact, mo- most counselors don't think that. Like I've talked to counselors like, oh yeah, that doesn't work. You have to go do the work. Well, what does going to do the work means? Well, it could mean reflecting by yourself and journaling or thinking about stuff and praying. But what it also kinds of means is getting in the right kinds of relationships, right? And those sorts and of practicing. things. Practicing. Right. And practicing. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. 
receiving love and giving love and delighting in people and being delighted in all that. So I would say um, a place where the good can happen is really key to this, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what the church can be and the body of Christ can be. But also it's a place of teaching about God's truths and telling them how God's healing comes and what we should put our faith in and how we should pursue it and all those sorts of things too. So I, I think the teaching of the ministry, ministry of the church is important. Um, but that I think the that community nature is important. And then also like what, what the apostle James said, where he says, confess your sins to another and then pray for one another so that you can be healed. He recognized that, that we had physical diseases, that we had wounds, and that we also had the sickness of being sinners. And that there is a, a shared interpersonal dynamic of praying, asking God for forgiveness, confessing our sins to each other. Then you pray for me and that God uses that as an opportunity to heal. And so I think that doing that work of confessing to each other and praying for each other so that you can be healed is it's directly commanded in the scriptures. And it seems to be a social dynamic that God really uses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some specific things I would add is just being as open in your with your life as possible we we live in a really individualistic culture and we like our privacy and we don't like things we don't want to take on other people's problems and stresses and so um if we're helping people heal there's going to be some what our culture would say toxic Mm-hmm. stuff happening. Um yeah. and so like knowing how to handle that yes with boundaries of course but also with grace and forgiveness. Um that's what's going to be practiced for people who really need it. Yeah, and I think one of those key boundaries is like you said be as open as you can be without putting out there that other people should take responsibility for your life. Cuz yes. nobody wants to do that. And they won't and they shouldn't. And so you, if you share about what's going on with you in a way where you're taking responsibility for it, you're not making it their problem, and yet you're sharing yourself with them mm-hmm. rather than giving them responsibility for your problems. Mm-hmm. Um, that'll both draw them to you and, and make them want to be part of the relationship, and it won't create an unhealthy codependency or cause them to yeah. just reject you. Yeah. In vulnerability, think also about being hospitable and what and how to be hospitable to someone else, not just mm-hmm. be authentic or like dump something off or yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, next question. Any recommended books for learning more about or working through the primal wounds? Also, do you have any recommended books or resources for ritual repetition? There are a lot of secular options out there. Are there any Christian ones? Hmm. Um, I do think Jay Stringer's book, um, uh, Unwanted, Unwanted, is pretty good. Mm-hmm. It focuses on unwanted sexual behavior, specifically in relationship to men. Well, women, too. He has good, a good number of examples right. of women, too. Yeah. Um, but I, I worked through that book because I knew all these men were working through it, and the men's forgiven and free. And I don't have any unwanted sexual behaviors that are sins in my life. Um, and yet, I still found it very, very helpful in working through mm-hmm. stuff. So I thought that was really good. Um, we're, you and I are looking at using a couple resources right now. Um, one of them from Lori Real is it called Journey Creel, Well or Creek? Jer- yeah, Lori yeah. Creek. Um, Journey Well. I went through that one. It was pretty good. Um, she her experience is with same sex attraction, so it does talk a good bit about that too. Mm-hmm. But it was helpful. Same with Jay Stringer's book on unwanted sexual behavior. I found both of those resources helpful regardless 
Um, And and then then, you're working through mending the soul. Yes. In the trauma group. Yep. Um, So we're, we're going to be starting a women's trauma group hopefully in January. Um, But we're looking at mending the soul for that. That book is really helpful, but I would recommend going through it with someone and in community because it's very intense (laughs) at some points. If you've been through it, it, it helps you heal from abuse. Um, And so if you've been through that, it can be, I found it triggering sometimes. Um, and I, it's just like made me really heavy and kind of in a funk mm-hmm. through the day. So if yeah, you're in a really low... We don't mean the sort of like, I don't like that. You shouldn't be talking about that in front of me. No. What we mean is literally you have a physiological response. <laughs> yes. As a reaction to something that's involuntary. That's what tr- we mean. Right. That's what triggering is supposed yep. to mean. Like images and like terrible memories coming yeah. back or... Um, panic yeah. attack. Or, panic attack. Mm-hmm. So it can be that. So don't... It, yeah. I've just given you a heads up on that one. It's very good. Hopefully we'll have a group going through it soon and more as well. Yeah. So yeah. In relationship that. to ritual repetition, um, you quoted one of the books, on the, on the, that Benedictine book in the devotional, right? Jill? Oh, the devotional. Um, are you talking about the common rule one? Yeah, I think so. Yes. Yeah. That is really helpful um, in terms of practices, not so much um like i mean there's different kinds of repetition like telling yourself the truth um in the face of a lie over and over but um this one deals with like how to set these restful um rhythms in your life so that you aren't like escaping all the time or diverting yourself yeah. um so it's really yeah. important in a different kind of way many of the the ritual repetitions that i was talking about in the sermon are the religious ones are the mm-hmm. like not the necessarily like processing, psychologically processing healing ones, mm-hmm. but that those repetitions actually have a healing effect indirectly. That as you worship regularly and you're devoting your heart and soul to adoring God for his worth, it, that moves your affections in that direction. As you pray daily and you like let yourself settle out and you let yourself mm-hmm. be conscious of the things that are really important and what God really thinks about you and who he is the the religious ritual of thanking God and praying to the God who deserves that also has the psycho the, the psychological side effect. But one of the things I tell people is, do you, if you do it for the psychological side effect, you often don't get it. You've got to do it for its its spiritual purpose mm-hmm. mainly. Um, but as you do them, it, it's really helpful, and that's true for for fasting, praying, worship, quiet times, meditation, reflection, mm-hmm. um, reflective scripture reading. Like, there's all kinds of these sort of ritual repetitions that are religious by nature. Um, I do think though that there are some psychological repetitions that are good to do. Some of them are covered in secular sources and there's nothing wrong with them. Um, uh, like for example, I've used certain kinds of meditation, not meditation on scripture, just meditation as a mechanism to like, I have a really overactive mind and sometimes doing that before prayer is helpful. Mm-hmm. And so um, I don't imbue it with any kind of Eastern mystical, whatever. I just like, I take a minute to just be quiet and to breathe mm-hmm. and then to pray after the natural craziness of my mind just kind of settles down after I take in and out 25 breaths or so. So, um, but, but yeah, I, I do think that as you try to figure out, I think that your ritual repetitions psychologically should be relative to what you're pursuing healing wise. So as you start to reflect on your wounds and like what they are and what's going on, then I, you begin to realize like, what would I need to repeat to rewrite this? Mm-hmm. Well, right. 
But I yeah. think it's important not to get to ritual repetition psychologically too soon. I think the the repetitions of spirituality, prayer, worship, fellowship, those kinds of things, you can do those immediately because you're not going to harm anything because you're not ready. From a psychological perspective, I think some people will be like, okay, well, the reason I'm having this experience is because I'm a perfectionist. I'm a perfectionist because I want to get things right. Um, and then you just go, okay, so I'm going to keep telling myself not to be a perfectionist. If you do that, you just haven't done the processing. You don't really know mm-hmm. what the problem is, right? You don't right. know why. You know, perfectionism can usually comes from some sort of insecurity. Well, what is that? Why do you believe you have mm-hmm. to be perfect? Like, what do you think is going to pass you by? Is it fear of missing out? Is it you were never good enough? Like, that all matters. Because then, then you, what you want is you want the repetition to be specifically focused on that. The other thing too is if, you're, if your primal mind, like the part of you that is feeling these things very deeply, if it doesn't feel listened to, it doesn't work, right? If you just think about like, if I was having a discussion with my wife where she was unhappy and she said like two lines about what she thought and I cut her off and started to create a solution, she'd be like, I'm not playing, right? I'm not, I'm not part of this. And that part of your heart and mind has to feel like it's part of it, mm-hmm. right? And so you have to go through a kind of a listening process before you, you use your conscious mind to start controlling. Because for most people, that's what they've been doing their whole lives. They use their conscious mind to control their primal mind or their, you, you mm-hmm. might call it their deliberative mind to control their intuitive mind or their whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, that part of you, that like that more primal place in you rebels, it, it, like, it fights you. And that's exactly what you're trying to not have. That's why you feel anxious. That's one of the reasons why you feel depressed. If, if, it's re- if your anxiety or depression is related to this kind of thing is because you're fighting yourself. And mm-hmm. if you start these repetitions of change too quickly, you won't have really listened to yourself and you're not really pulling yourself back into integrity. You're really just trying to control that part of yourself again, which is just going to lead to worse things. So yeah. just to be careful how you apply that in the non-religious sense. But, but mm-hmm. the ritual repetitions that I'm talking about primarily are the spiritual devotions, lamentation, yeah. prayer, Bible reading, mm-hmm. worship, fellowship, service, rest, rest. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and I've found that my idols are, which spiritual disciplines attack, um, are often tied to my wounds. And so mm-hmm. like one of the most helpful spiritual disciplines for me is rest. and taking a whole day where I don't, I, I would like to work oftentimes and catch up. Like I always feel like I want to catch up, but if I say, I am not going to do that at all, I'm going to just trust that it's going to work out. I'm going to trust the Lord for him to provide for me. Um, that kills the idol, but it also in those moments gets at my wound of like, why do I feel so insecure right now? Because I can't work, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so they can work together. Um, but starting with the spiritual disciplines, I think is really important. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. Um, do unbelievers ever remain that way purely because of intellectual objections? To what extent is it a moral issue? Um Yeah, I mean I I don't think any human being can be that um divided out to where anything mm. is purely intellectual. I don't think there's such a thing as that. I think that human beings labor to be as objective as we can be. And we try to be as rational as we can be when we think that's the right form of analysis or the right level of analysis. But I I don't think ever 
that ever really happens. And I don't think human beings can really sort out entirely what is intellectual and what is part of our intuitive sense or our feelings or what's brought up by experiences or our past wounds or our pre-programmed pre-adolescent childhood experience, like, you know, interpretations. I, I mean, that, that's all mixed in a way that we don't totally understand. So, um, so I, no, I don't think that for anyone, unbelievers or believers, that w- our faith in what we think is entirely intellectual by nature. I don't think, and I don't think almost anything we think is entirely intellectual by nature. Um, in, in the sense we normally think of it as intellectual. So I, I think it's all moral and philosophical and intuitive and all kind of wrapped together in ways that we don't totally understand. So we, we, being as rational as you can be isn't the same thing as being entirely rational. And the fact that I don't think a human being can literally can be entirely rational doesn't mean that that's not what we're trying to be. And it doesn't mean it's not worth attempting. Right. When somebody else, when somebody else's life is online, you should be as disinterested as you can be in how you treat them. That's what justice requires. And so you have to be as objective as you could possibly be. Does it mean you're going to be objective? Well, I don't know. Probably not, but you should be as objective as you can be. Right. So the answer is no to that for me. Okay. Next question. What do you think of Ray Comfort's method of taking people through the Ten Commandments when he evangelizes? Do you have any suggested alternatives? And are you familiar? Yeah, that? I mean, um I've seen I've seen some of his videos about how he does stuff and and generally speaking, he will take people to moral principles, show them that we're not living up to them, and that that is bad. And that leads to God's wrath and, and so on, takes us from law to grace. And um, but I haven't watched one in a while, so I, I don't want to be too specific about how it works. I, mm-hmm. When I watch those videos, I, I tend to think that really works for some people. I, I think the path that people take to Jesus, I just don't think that it should be prescriptive. I don't, I don't think there's any like, oh, it has to be like this. In one sense, I think, yeah, repentance has to precede faith. Like, if somebody comes to Jesus in a way that isn't morally serious, they don't understand the gospel. So yeah, they have to come to the gospel on its basic logic of like, Jesus died for our sins. Like it has to be in some way wrapped around forgiveness and our repentance in relationship to that forgiveness. But I think you can come into the gospel in so many different ways. And I think one of them is healing. I think you can talk about that God wants to heal. But I think that when you're talking to somebody who feels like a victim and wants that healing, you do have to let them know that like, um, to enter into that healing, you have to be forgiven. That's the mm-hmm. first step. And in order to be forgiven, you have to recognize that you're not just a victim. You're also a perpetrator. Mm-hmm. And I think you, I, so I think there's, there's, there's many doors to the gospel, but you don't enter into Jesus without recognizing that you're a sinner. Right. Oh. And so yep. comforts, I, I think cover stuff works for some people. I think it doesn't work for some people, you know, but yeah. I, I think that more people, yeah, I don't, I don't want to like, I don't want to endorse or not endorse him. I, when I watch the videos, I'm like, he's clever. That's working for some of these folks who have a certain kind of personality. Um, but I wouldn't want to say that, but I, but I don't want to belittle him either. Like, I, I think he's trying to do evangelism. So I don't, I don't like to push back on people doing evangelism. <laughs> I mean, any, people do evangelism. I'm basically on their team, you know, mm. unless it's really, really awful. And I didn't, I, that's not the perception I get from comfort. Some yeah. people object to him because there, there's a certain, what I consider heretical group of Christians who believe that 
you don't have to repent of your sins to be saved. You only have to believe in Jesus. And because comfort believes in discipleship and believes that like you have to repent and believe, um, and therefore that moral thing is really serious, they attack him for that. But I, I think that's it. I think that comes from ignorance and a misunderstanding of the gospel in a way that's heretical. So I, I don't think that those objections against comfort are, are good ones. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Another question. Are you familiar with Neil T. Anderson's bondage breaker as a method to d- address the process you described in your sermon to become free of sin? Yeah. So to be honest, I read, I mean, th- I read bondage breaker when I was a college student in like 1996. So my memory of his mechanisms is really limited. Um, I remember it being kind of not groundbreaking at the time, but like helpful. Like it was, it was ahead of most other resources at that time. Um, whether it's still reasonably good. I don't, I don't really know. I, I do. I knew, you know, dealing with things related to wounds from a psychological perspective and a discipleship perspective has come a long way in 30 years. And so I would be surprised if that was the best resource to use now, but I don't know. What one of the things bondage breaker does is it takes the reality of sin and demonization and the spiritual realities of how our psychology is bound up with our own spirit and how that is bound up with the reality of God's existence and the existence of devils. Really, he takes all that really seriously as a theologian. And so um, there's a lot of resources that don't. You could read a lot of Christian stuff on healing that doesn't mention devils and temptation and um, diabolical lies that are affecting us. Um, that's part. Of, that's part of that. When I talked about Christian counseling, often falls into essentially materialism. That's one symptom of that. Does that make sense? So, mm-hmm. okay. Th- whatever false bondage breaker has, that's not one of them. All right. Last question. Do you think that sometimes sin can be a good thing? If we didn't have sin, I feel like we would fall away from God because there is nothing to test us, but sin is still sin. Okay. So uh, it's one, this is one of those, it all depends on what you mean by questions. So Mm -hmm. sin is never a good, right? By definition, the reason something is a sin is because it is, it does not conform to the goodness of God. So a priori, like before anything else, sin is bad. Okay. Now can sin have the effect of bringing about a good, right? Can God work it for good? Absolutely. Of course he can. Yes. And the Bible says explicitly in a number of places and God can work all things for the good for those who submit to him, believe in him and, and want to, and are called according to his purpose. So, um, so yeah. I mean, God uses adultery and divorce and abandonment and all kinds of things to um, do all kinds of goods. One of those goods being to cause us to be more dependent on him and to seek more of his help for momentary grace. But he uses it for all all kinds of other things too. So uh, sin can be worked for good, but sin is never good. Mm-hmm. You might in the end say, I'm glad that happened. But if you really believe the thing is sin, you would never say, if I could go back again, I'd sin all over again. Right. Right. Yeah. You're glad the redemption happened and like how God has used it despite what it is. 
Yeah. So my mom says it this way. We were talking about how she raised me. And she's like, you know, the more I live, the more I realize I I like made all these mistakes. And she said, but I wouldn't go back because I know how many things can go wrong. And I think you and your brother turned out well. And I would I wouldn't go back and risk that. But if I could go back to a particular moment, if I was sent back to a particular moment where I did something I think is a mistake now, I would do it differently. Mm-hmm. Because I'd have to, because I think it's wrong. You know, even though it might set us on some kind of new timeline or something, you know? So and I think that that's the idea towards sin there. I can, I can point to sins in my life where I wouldn't go back because what God has brought about since then, partly through that sin, I wouldn't want to risk all the good that he's brought about. And yet, if he took me back to that moment, I would act differently, mm-hmm. you know, because it's sin. It's wrong. It, it, yeah. It's an offense to God. It, it should never have happened. And I have to believe that if I had not sinned, God could still bring about great goods for me, you know, and would have. Yeah. So. Yes. All right. That's what we've got on healing. Um, hopefully we'll have more resources to come um, because I know that a lot of you really thought the sermon was helpful and want to dig into this more. So. Yep. We're working on some things. Hopefully we'll, hopefully we're going to roll something out this, this Sunday, coming Sunday. We'll see if we can get it done in time. Yep. yep. All right. Thanks, Nick. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. You can find more episodes online at highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on most podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Overcast. If you are listening on a podcast app, hit subscribe to get notified of future episodes. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.